Thanksgiving. And so we want to spend some time in our hearts as well as with our voices to giving thanks to the Lord for what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do for us as we think of him and we give him thanks for his goodness toward us. It's also a time when we see what's happening in the land of Israel and we want to be mindful that God has a plan and a purpose and all things are going according to that plan. You and I may know not of the details and the specifics of that plan, but indeed all eyes are focused on God's chosen people. That is God's plan. And that by focusing on God's chosen people, perhaps the nations of the world might be drawn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who has chosen them. That too is God's purpose and God's program. And as all eyes are drawn to the land of Israel and the conflict that is brewing and unfolding right before our, our eyes, certainly we know that the nations of the world would rally against God's people in the latter days. In fact, a major portion of the book of Revelation is devoted to that gathering of armies against God's chosen people. The latter portion of the book of Zechariah tells us similarly how all the nations of the world will be focused on Israel and particularly on Jerusalem. As we're studying through the book of Daniel and we're coming into that portion, the latter portion of the book of Daniel, which is devoted to visions that Daniel received. Up until this portion, we're now looking at chapter 6. The visions and dreams have been given to others. It was Nebuchadnezzar that had a dream. It was Nebuchadnezzar who was given a vision. It was the handwriting on the wall that was particularly there for Belshazzar to see. But Daniel was given the privilege of knowing all of those dreams, seeing all of those sights, and being able to grant the interpretation and the meaning of what others have seen and heard. But beginning in chapter 7, we're not there yet, but beginning in chapter 7, through the end of the book of Daniel, four visions are given to Daniel about which he describes, relates, and for which he is given an interpretation. He is not told the interpretation uh, much like he was given the interpretation in Nebuchadnezzar, but rather angels come to him and tell him this is what it means that you have seen. Chapter 7 will begin the first of the series of visions that Daniel will have, and we'll look at that next week. But today I want to complete the sixth chapter of Daniel. The first six chapters, in a, in a real sense, can be seen as historical. It tells us of these events that Daniel and his companions had experienced. We read about how they were taken into captivity. We read about how they were trained in <clears throat> the knowledge of the Babylonians. So as to be elevated as one of Nebuchadnezzar's counselors. We read of, <clears throat> excuse me, of how Nebuchadnezzar built a statue, all of gold, representing himself and his kingdom. And because of Daniel's three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, because they would not bow down to that image, were thrown into that fiery furnace, and how God had sustained them and protected them and preserved them. We read about how Nebuchadnezzar himself had a dream as this giant tree and how the tree would be lopped down. 
And it represented Nebuchadnezzar himself and how he would fall from his position of power and authority. And how he would become much like the beasts of the field. And that that episode, though horrendous to experience, though trying, and though we would not wish that upon anyone's, and Daniel himself says, oh, I wish this was something for your enemies, but it is not, O king, it is for you. It was a very trying seven years in which he experienced some kind of psychological and physical metamorphosis that led him to live outdoors and out with the beasts for seven years. But God had a purpose in that moment of anguish for Nebuchadnezzar. For it would be the final event that would bring him into a living relationship with the God of Daniel. And thus he concludes by affirming the sovereignty and lordship of Daniel's God and not the gods of the Babylonians. And then we read in chapter 5 last week of how Belshazzar threw this incredible feast. And a hand appears from out of nowhere and inscribes on the wall in Persian language that Belshazzar has been numbered. That is to say, the cumulative effect of his sins have risen. And not only have they been numbered, God is fully aware of all that Belshazzar has done. And it culminates and climaxes with him taking the vessels from the temple of God that Nebuchadnezzar had brought to Babylon and placed in one of the pagan temples. He took the vessels from the temple of God and used them in this time of banqueting and honoring of the false gods of Babylon. Now God moves. And he says, the number of your sins has been taken note of. And not only are they numbered, but they are assessed, they are weighed, they are evaluated. And the evaluation is not good news for you. For now you will have to pay for your debts. And his kingdom would now fall, and he himself would lose his life. That very evening, the media Persian entity of the Persian Empire entered into Babylon and destroyed the city and took captive this nation. And now in chapter 6, those events are past. The Babylonians are no more. And now the Median Persian Empire reigns where Babylon once reigned. We're told that in verse 1, that Darius, the Mede, if you turn to chapter 5 and you look at verse Uh, the, The conclusion, verse 30, 31, it says, And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom of Babylon, and he was 62 years old at the time. That's not a bad age, is it, Gary? It's a great age. It's the new 40. It's the new 40. And at 62, he takes over Babylon. Daniel is about 80, 85 years old. He's an older man. And Belshazzar did not recognize his qualities and his gifts and his devotion and his loyalty. And so he ignored Daniel until the handwriting on the wall had appeared. But Darius would not be so foolish. Darius, we're told, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 6, that he appointed 120 satraps, rulers, 
to rule throughout the kingdom of Persia. If you look in the book of Esther, you'll notice that at that time in Persian history, that there were 127 provinces that made up the Persian Empire. Perhaps they will expand from this point, but at this point there are probably 120 provinces, and Darius the Mede sets up rulers over all of those provinces. But at the top of the heap are three individuals. And over them, and with three administrators over the 120 rulers, and one of them was Daniel. So that is an incredible elevation, an incredible reward and recognition Daniel is being given. Out of the 120 rulers, he's one of three who is overseeing them all. He must have been a man of great loyalty, a man of great trust, a man of great wisdom, for he's being entrusted with the king's finances. He has to make sure that the taxes that are levied on the outlying provinces are collected and are gathered and are brought to the king. He must have been a man of great integrity, for the king does, want, does not want to lose one single, well, shekel, penny, he doesn't want to lose any of that. And so these three men are critical to his kingdom. He wants to set up Daniel over them all. But he's a little reluctant because he does not want to offend the other rulers with whom Daniel must serve. But those other rulers are desirous of bringing Daniel and his reputation down. Now there is a passage in this chapter that stands out among all the verses. Take a look at this. In chapter 6, verse 5, as these individuals who want to bring down Daniel and take over his responsibilities are contemplating how they can get Daniel out of this position, they realize Daniel doesn't do anything wrong that they can point the finger at and say he is failing you on this score or on that matter. Daniel is so impeccable a character. They can't find fault with him. But here's the interesting passage. They say we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of God. Now would that not be a great testimony for every believer? We can't find a single thing wrong with any of these guys, any of these men, any of these women, unless we do something to have him violate God's law, God's standard. But they can't find anything about his own character or his own failings. Wouldn't it be great if that was true of all of us? You know, and people that saw us saw these people are great. I don't know anything wrong with it. And if we're going to plot against them, it's not going to be with regard to their responsibilities, but it's going to be with regard to somehow getting them in trouble with their faith. And so that is their plan. So they say to Darius, Darius, you're such a great man. You're the ruler of this kingdom. Far be it from anyone to worship any other God, any other individual character, anything else other than the gods you acknowledge. Darius was not thinking very well at this score. 
very prideful man. And he thought, yes, that is exactly right. No one should worship any other God than the gods I would place to be acknowledged. He didn't think about the impact this might have on one of his leading workers, one of his leading servants. So he signs a decree prohibiting anyone from worshiping, acknowledging any other God for 30 days. And the king signs it. As is true, we know from history as well as from the book of Esther, in the Persian Empire, these decrees that were signed were understood to have been led, guided, directed by the gods in whom they placed their trust. And therefore, any decretive kind of decision that is made is one that cannot be reversed or altered. And so what happens is, and I think this is just amazing, look at Daniel. What an incredible character. In verse 10, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, look what he does. He makes a point of going home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. That's the problem they find with him. He's not cheating the king. He's not failing in his duties. He's not a lazy man. They can't find anything wrong with him except he prays. And now that the king has signed a decree that no acknowledgement of any other God can be made, that's what they will find as the charge against Daniel. But isn't Daniel an amazing character? He hears the decree, and what does he do? I'm going to go home and pray. And what is he going to pray about? If it was me, I wouldn't even go that far. I'd say it's only a 30-day decree. God knows my heart. And to be sure, there are many of us who have gone more than 30 days without ever really praying. Is that not true? Have there not been times in our lives, I'll speak for me, there have been times in my life where I've known that I've been so distraught or so confused or so uh, just not thinking as clearly as I would like. The last thing I wanted to do was to go before God and just sort of sit there, just sort of babble about things that I had no knowledge about, just to sort of go through the motions because, well, you're supposed to do that if you love God and you want to walk with Him. But that's not Daniel's attitude. I might have thought, it's only 30 days, and I've done worse than that, and it's never been decreed against me. And I could pray in my heart. I don't have to pray out loud. I could go off in a corner somewhere, off in the uh, forest, under a tree, somewhere where no one will find me. And I could pray silently. And I don't have to pray long. I mean, even the scripture says, don't be like the Gentiles who think that because of their much speaking, they'll be heard much more. I could just pray a sentence. Lord, you know what's going on, and I love you. And no one would catch me. No one would see me. But Daniel doesn't do that. 
What Daniel is, well, forget about going home and opening his window facing Jerusalem and praying like he normally did. He might as well just stood outside of his home and prayed as he always did. The courage of this man is incredible. The devotion of this man is exemplary. And the love of this man for his God is overwhelming, isn't it? It just grabs your heart. Think about that. How often have we gone through problems and we've said, you know, I'm just not in the mood to go to service this morning. Daniel's going through a life-threatening situation. His life is in the balance. And like his three companions, it didn't matter what the consequences would be. His love for God is preeminent. And his service to him and the subjecting of his will to his is preeminent. And it's a priority. Notice that he does what he's been doing regularly. This is a great thing for us to take pause in. It's when you establish routines, spiritual disciplines in a routine way, that they become a part of your life. And therefore, to interrupt them is sort of like, you know, it, it just throws you off. You know what it's like when you sit in your car, and maybe you loaned it, and someone changed the seat. You just sit there and say, something wrong, and you got to go through and readjust everything. If no one's used it, you feel comfortable, you're ready to go, you don't even think about it. Remember the first time you learned how to drive a car? And that brave individual that was sitting alongside of you, you know, and you said, okay, where do you start? You put the key in, you put your seatbelt on. I haven't done this in a long time, so obviously I've got the order all wrong. But whatever process you went through the very first time, it was like agonizing, you know. But now you don't even think about it because the routine of driving so frequently has just become a part of who you are. I'll never forget when I was in one of my college classes, one of my Hebrew classes, and the fellow who taught was such a wonderful, wonderful professor and a great scholar who knew something like on the order of 18 different languages. And his family were, was into health foods. Corey would like that. But in, into health foods, and um, Ruth would too, into health foods and all of that. And so he was telling us that we had a lot of things to memorize, a lot of vocabulary words, grammatical rules, um, memory verses, you know, all kinds of things. So he gave us a little tip. He said, if you want to memorize something, the brain, this is what he told us. I hope it's still true. But he said the brain actually memorizes things two ways. It can memorize things electrically and it can memorize things chemically. He paused for a moment. He said, think about that. A memory, a thought can become a physical entity in your body. And that thought, that idea, can become a chemical in your body. And the way that that happens, he said, is not by memorizing things electrically. And so we're all sitting there saying, I think he's memorized too many languages, you know. He's hung out with the, in the Egyptian room of, you know, the Museum of Fine Arts on Fifth Avenue, New York, a little too long. But what he said was, when you need to memorize something for the short term, you're telling your brain, Look, listen, I don't really need this for the long haul. I just need it for right now. An electrical charge goes through your brain, and there's the memory. And as soon as that thing about which you are to remember for the short term is done, it evaporates. 
It's gone. Because you don't need it for the long haul. You only needed it for a moment. It's like somebody giving directions. No, you got to turn here. Or remember, five seconds down here, you're going to make the turn. You make the turn. And then when you leave home, you say, how did we get here? Because your brain wasn't being told to know this for a long term. It was only told to get here. But if you want, and this is what our teacher was saying, if you want to memorize something for the long haul, like for your midterm and your final exam, then you want your brain to translate those memories into chemicals. Well, how do you do that? You don't do it by sitting at long periods of time regurgitating things. Said, in fact, when you do that, the brain starts saying, you know, you keep telling me you want me to know this so much. I guess you don't want me to memorize it at all. And so it erases it. But when you do little pieces, and what he said to us was, you take five minutes, no more, no less, every morning, afternoon, evening, before you go to bed. Five minutes, go over your stuff. Five minutes, go over your stuff. Five minutes, five minutes. And by the time you get to the end of the week, your brain will have translated those memory verses, those grammatical rules, those vocabulary into chemicals, and now they're part of your body. And as long as you continue to, re to repeat the routine, you will never forget it. That's why when you go into a car, you never think about, how do I drive this thing? But there was a moment when you asked that question. There was a moment when you asked, how does a person walk? Because you only crawled for a long time. Then over time, somebody helped you walk. And now you don't get up in the morning and say, gee, I got to remember, put my foot here, stay balanced, give it. It just happens. Because those are memories that are chemically placed in your body. They've come by way of routine. And the reason why Daniel just did what he did is because that's what he does. <laughs> he didn't really think about it. He just does what he does. What does he do? He prays three times a day. He always faces Jerusalem. He kneels down, which was typical of Jewish praying in the ancient world. And he faces toward Jerusalem, no doubt praying in behalf of his people. He knew the book of Jeremiah. In fact, in chapter 9, he's reading Jeremiah chapter 25. And in Jeremiah 25 was God's promise. You'll be taken to Babylon, but only for 70 years, and then you're going to be brought back. Daniel is now at the time when the Babylonian Empire has come to a conclusion. He knew God's word. He was studying God's word. And he was praying God's word. Return your people to Israel. A year later, Darius will be off the throne in Babylon, and Cyrus will reign supreme. And his first decree will be for the Jewish people to return as God had promised. For God is sovereign. His plans will not be thwarted. And Daniel was praying that God would complete his plan for Israel and that the people would be returned. And thus they were. Notice his prayer. He gave thanks to the Lord. And what did he give thanks for? He no doubt gave thanks for the opportunity to be a testimony of God to the kings of Babylon and now the kings of Persia. No doubt he was giving thanks for the opportunity he had to demonstrate his loyalty to God, whether it would cost him his life or not. No doubt he gave thanks to the Lord because God's plan was coming to fruition. The Babylonians are no more. The Persians have arisen. And Israel will go back to their land. So this was a man of great character. This was a man of great routines, spiritual routines that characterized his life. This is a man who was a student of the word. Prayed the truths of God's word. 
lived the truths of God's word, trusted the truths of God's word, no matter what the circumstances around him looked like. And when the king's attention was brought to bear that this man has disobeyed your decree, Darius is like, what have I done? In fact, when he is told of this matter, and that now Daniel must be thrown into a den of lions, he spends all day trying to figure out how he can get Daniel out of this. All day. He would not rest until he found a loophole. But the enemies of Daniel would not allow him to see any loopholes, for he had signed a decree, and therefore there were no loopholes to be found. But Darius wanted them terribly. When Daniel is thrown into that den, Darius spends the night walking the palace garden, walking the palace rooms. It says that he did not sleep at all. So worried he was about Daniel. So desirous he was that he would live. And he gets up early in the morning. He's so concerned for Daniel and so desirous of his endurance. It's like Abraham who gets up early in the morning to do God's will, to bring his son to the mount that the Lord would show him to offer him up as a burnt offering on one of those mountains. It's like Yeshua who spends all night in prayer and gets ready to go and to follow the Lord to his death in our behalf. But when he gets to the den of the lions and he cries out, Daniel, has your God saved you? Daniel responds, yes, he has. He shut the mouths of the lions. Daniel was asleep in the midst of his storm. Like Yeshua, asleep in the boat in the midst of the storm. It's those that had lacked the faith that were worried, are we going to drown? It was Darius that was concerned, will he live? But Daniel was ready to live as well as to die. But he was fortunate in that God spared him as a sign to Darius and to all of us who read that story that the Lord watches over his people and he preserves them from all harm. Sometimes God leads us in the ways of life and sometimes he leads us in the ways of death. Some of God's servants over history have been delivered from one kind of lion's den or another. And some of God's servants have not been so delivered and found themselves prematurely, perhaps, ushered into the very presence of God by his own hand. As the Lord said, that he goes to prepare a place for, for us. That where I am, you may be also. And he says, I will come again and bring you to that place. And so our Messiah promises to be our guide when our time comes to enter into his presence. But whether in life or death, we are to be ones that are committed to walk in his ways and to follow him. And so on this particular Sunday, when we're thinking about giving thanks... We want to give thanks to the Lord for his love for us and all he's done for us and for his empowerment to us, like Daniel, 
that we in response can love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. At this juncture, when we see Israel assailed by her enemies, it is a good thing to remember Daniel. For Daniel, in a way, symbolizes the Jewish people, doesn't he? Though sent to Babylon, sent to the far corners of our world, having to endure a variety of nations throughout their history, Israel emerges unscathed like Daniel had emerged unscathed from the lions. There's another analogy I just want to end with, and that is you cannot help but see the analogy with Messiah himself. Because those caves in that, the ancient world were not like zoos. They were underground caverns that lions had ramps that led lions into those underground caverns. And there were roofs that could be, or tiles that could be opened up. And there were walls in these dens so that when they wanted to clean out one side, they would slip a stone or some metal or wood between the rooms and they'd usher one of the lions or the lions into one side, feed them, and clean out the den on the other side. Daniel, like Joseph, was thrown into a pit, as it were. It wasn't like they open the door and go in there and, you know, try to run as fast as you can around the cage. He was in a hole that was lightless, that was covered by stones and by dirt. He was, as it were, entombed, like Messiah himself was entombed. And like Messiah, Daniel was resurrected, as it were, from the dead. He'll have something to say to us about resurrection in chapter 12. Messiah himself rose from the dead, and therefore we can have life in him. We have much to give thanks for. We have much to pray about with regard to Israel, but praying knowing God is in control. And as he has delivered Israel in the past, he will deliver her in the present. So let's pray. While we are praying, if the ushers could come forward in, in preparation for the observance of the Lord's Supper, we will do that as well. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful servant of yours, Daniel. A man who is so sold out for you, his character and his service to the king of Media Persia was impeccable. And thus he was elevated to a place of supreme leadership. Father, we are impressed by this man whose devotion to you was spotless. And thus he had this routine built into his very fibers that though to his own demise could not help but pray. For this was his lifeline unto you. And this was his normal manner of giving you praise and showing his love for you. And Father, by this event, we indeed learn once again you are sovereign over all things. And you protect those 
whom you so choose to protect. Daniel was among those and countless others have been as well. But Lord, it is testimony to your power, to your might, and to, you, and to your supreme rulership that those who would conspire against Daniel could not thwart the hand of God. And one like Darius, who was just foolish and ignorant, in his ignorance could not thwart God's hand and power either. And so as we see the nations of the world focused again on Israel, and we see her enemies attacking, we are once again reminded you are the sovereign Lord and you protect and defend your people. And then lastly, Lord, we are moved by what Messiah has done for us and how by trust in what he has done can give us life. Like Daniel, we merely need to trust you. And one day, we will be delivered from all of our trials. And one day, we will stand before you. And we will, by your grace, hear those wonderful words, well done, good, faithful child of mine.